Let us pray. Father, truly Jesus is our King and our Lord and our God. So we pray now that you would draw us more fully into your presence and conform us more and more to his likeness through the preaching of your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning again, everyone. And again, a very Merry Christmas. Have to remind ourselves in these days that Christmas actually lasts for 12 days. And so it is still very much Christmas. I want to invite you to open your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them to Matthew chapter 2. Today's gospel reading is a difficult one. And I really, quite honestly, struggled where to focus as I prepared this sermon. This gospel reading is filled with tragedy. It's filled with pain. It's filled with heartbreak. And it is a text of scripture that shows the lengths to which wicked people will go to not only attempt to thwart God's will, but to also attempt to prop up their delusions of temporal power. Events and actions such as what Herod does in this text should leave no doubt in our minds and hearts as to the depths of human wickedness and depravity apart from God's regenerating and transforming power. And what is recorded in these verses of today's gospel reading follows immediately on the heels of the visit of the Magi. It's actually triggered by their visit and especially by their departure. The visit of the Magi is something we'll be commemorating this Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. on the Feast of Epiphany through a live stream service. Something new that we're doing this year as we did last year with Ascension Day on Thursday, 40 days after Easter. But these events which are triggered by the Magi's visit and departure are the result of their refusal to be party to Herod's wicked schemes. I want to focus especially today on verses 13 through 18 of Matthew chapter 2. And I want to approach them and treat them today really as two separate scenes, if you will, in a tragic divine drama. Scene one involves the Holy Family's flight to Egypt. Scene two describes the wicked King Herod's order to murder all male children under the age of two in the region surrounding Bethlehem in his futile and vain attempt to eliminate the one who was born as king and as savior. This tragic event of the slaying of the innocents is also remembered each year on December 28th on our church calendar, marking its importance. So let's take a moment to look at each of these scenes and at some of the important lessons in them for us. So first scene one, the flight to Egypt in verses 13 through 15 of Matthew chapter 2. And with both of these scenes, I want to give us an overarching principle as we look at them. And the principle I'd like to focus on here in verses 13 through 15 of the flight to Egypt is the fact that God is the deliverer of those who are his. That's the principle we're looking at. Most immediately, we see this principle in action in in the fact that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph flee to Egypt to avoid Jesus being killed as a young child. And once again, God speaks to Joseph through an angel in a dream. 
This is similar to how God spoke to Joseph when it was announced to him that Mary was with child in Matthew 1.20 because there too we find God speaking to Joseph by an angel in a dream. And every indication here in our scripture text is that Joseph responded with haste to the angelic announcement in the dream. And it is certainly plausible that Joseph made hasty preparation for the flight with his family, perhaps fleeing even that very night. This was a matter of great urgency. We see that God protects them by leading them to Egypt. But how else, we need to ask, do we see God's promise of deliverance for those who are his fulfilled in this event? There are two things I'd like to talk about. One, the events in Matthew 2, 13 through 15 point prophetically to Jesus, the one who is greater than Moses. Now, there are a number of other prophetic fulfillments in this scripture passage as well. We see the quote of the prophet Jeremiah, which is fulfilled with Rachel weeping. I'm not going to get into that this morning. That's a whole other sermon. And then a little further along in our reading today, the fact that they didn't settle in back in the region of Bethlehem, but went to Nazareth is also a fulfillment of scripture, as was clearly indicated in our reading. But again, Matthew 2, 13 through 15, also prophetically point to Jesus, the one who is greater than Moses. This is a significant prophetic fulfillment and typology, if you will, that we see in this text. And by typology, I simply mean a prophetic picture or a word picture prefiguring in the Old Testament that which is now most fully accomplished in the New Testament, in this case, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, in the Old Testament, a type is a picture, a word picture, if you will, prophetically of something that would be fulfilled later in God's timetable. So let's look at a moment at Moses as a type, as a person prefiguring Jesus. And I ask you to hang with me here because this is significant. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, God promises Old Testament Israel that he will raise up a new prophet like but far greater than Moses. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my works in his mouth, words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But follow me here. Old Testament Israel goes to Egypt under the first Joseph, initially for the deliverance from a famine. Very much like Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, is led to God, by God to flee to Egypt once again for deliverance. So we have the Old Testament Joseph leading the people of God to Israel for deliverance and protection. Now we have Jesus, Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, fleeing with his family to Egypt for deliverance. Now let's go back to Moses for a moment. Moses was God's human instrument of deliverance for Old Testament Israel from Egypt to the promised land. Pharaoh tried to thwart God's plan, even all the way back in the beginning of the book of Exodus, by ordering the slaying of all male children born to the Hebrew people. Do you see the parallels? 
Exodus 1, verses 15 through 16, we read, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And then continuing in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 1, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. And we remember the account of Moses being hidden in the reeds along the river in a basket rather than being slain. While still in Egypt, Moses is raised up and then he leads God's people through the wilderness to the land of promise. While in the wilderness, he receives the commandments of the old covenant before they arrive to the promised land, but after the deliverance from Egypt begins. The exodus from Egypt is arguably the most important event in the Old Testament because it shows God's faithful deliverance of his people from oppression. And it is the fulfillment of his word as he leads them into the promised land. Now jumping forward here in a similar fashion, we see God protecting Jesus, the one through whom the new or renewed covenant will be fulfilled, bringing God's salvation not only to Old Testament Israel, but to every person, Jew and Gentile alike, who trusts in him. Jesus is the one who is greater than Moses and to whom Moses', whom Moses life and ministry ultimately point in fulfillment of God's prophecies. The second thing we see here is that God does not allow hostile authorities, human authorities, to destroy Jesus. The opponents of Jesus as a young child are Jewish authorities. Herod and his company appear in stark stark contrast to Jews who were true to the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets of which Jesus is the fulfillment. And there were many faithful Jews even among some of the leaders, as Scripture records through the New Testament, despite the corruption of many in the leadership structure and in the political structure. These faithful Jews are depicted in Scripture together with faithful Gentiles who are represented by the type of the Magi here in Matthew chapter 2. In contrast, Jewish authorities, the corrupt Jewish authorities, reject and try to destroy Jesus as a young child. And once again, as we jump forward in the Gospels, we see this pattern played out once again as corrupt, disobedient Jewish authorities would again try to destroy Jesus in his passion and crucifixion. Yet God delivers his faithful people through this one, through Jesus the Christ. God in his timing brings Jesus back. Jesus, Emmanuel, who is with God, God with us, he brings him back from Egypt. And this same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, much later in the Gospels, raises Jesus from the tomb after three days, bringing him back to life. And the resurrected Jesus himself gives us us this promise in Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. What does all of this teach us? It teaches us to understand and remember that despite what outward appearances might say, God is indeed at work accomplishing his purposes. It teaches us that God keeps his promises. 
And it reminds us and teaches us in ever greater measure that we, as his people, can trust him. God knows what he's doing. Just as persecuted believers down through the years have endured hardship through the ages and learned in profound ways that God was indeed at work, that God keeps his promises, and even when it doesn't make sense, we can trust him. And in those moments, in those moments of trial and testing, when in the natural it seems there is no deliverance possible, God will give us his grace in abundant measure. In his book, Against the Flow, Oxford professor John Lennox writes of a number of stories of persecuted Christians. And he writes, especially in 2015, in his book of one follower of Jesus who spent years in a Siberian labor camp for the crime of teaching his children the Bible. And in his interview with this believer, Lennox writes, this believer described to me that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. I listened, thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering how I would have fared under his circumstances. As if he had read my thoughts, this believer suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out, some, stumbled out something like, no, I am sure you are right. He then grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for the persecution that was to come. And Lennox adds this. We can be confident then that God will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before. God is at work. God is our deliverer. And he holds all of us, even in the most difficult of circumstances, he holds all of us who know and love him in his gracious, loving care. Despite challenges, despite hardship, despite the struggles of life in this fleeting world, which we are not exempt of as the people of God, God is the deliverer of those who are his. And brothers and sisters, we can count on that truth. Let's move to scene two, the slaying of the innocents. And the lesson here is that God always ultimately triumphs over evil. God ultimately triumphs over evil always. We're looking at verses 16 through 18. I don't know about you, but for me, these are, are really, really difficult verses to read. The murder of innocent children and fanicide is something which God's faithful people have always despised. It is something which is pagan and completely foreign to God's heart and God's character. And this kind of wicked behavior is something in which God's people have always refused to have any part or any connection. And that includes right down to the present. We see this throughout Scripture. This rejection of these types of behaviors and actions, both in the Old and the New Testaments. We see this in ancient extra-biblical literature 
and through the testimony of the church down through the centuries. Herod's order to slaughter of the innocent male children in Matthew 2.16 is not recorded in any other known historical documents. How that, however, that in no way diminishes the truthfulness of what took place here. Frankly, and tragically, these kinds of actions were commonplace with Herod, who was treacherous and who dealt severely with any perceived threat to his power or his authority mercilessly. Let me give you a few examples from historical records of the time to show you what a nice guy Herod was. When Herod's brother-in-law became too popular and was perceived by Herod then as a threat, he drowned in a pool but it's a pool that modern archaeology has excavated and has shown to be far too shallow for this to have happened by accident. His brother-in-law was drowned intentionally for being well-liked. Second, Herod wrongly suspected that two of his sons were plotting against him. And even though the plot was proved to be false, he ordered them strangled to death. Third, Herod ordered, and these are not all the accounts, these are just a few. Herod ordered another of his sons executed just five days before his own death. Herod also falsely accused his favorite wife of a crime and ordered her to be strangled, which she was. And in an act of blasphemy, Herod as king had a golden eagle erected over the temple in Jerusalem during his reign. A group of faithful Jewish teachers, Jewish rabbis and their students chopped down the eagle with their axes because it was dishonoring the Lord. Herod had all of them arrested. It was more than 40 of them and had them burned alive. What is the point of all this? Well, first of all, it's that Herod was an incredibly wicked and debased human being. But what else is the point? Well, yes, what happened here was a prophetic fulfillment, but the direct cause of such evil was not God. God is not the author of evil. Rather, Herod, in his wickedness, and those seeking to oppose God and destroy his, Jesus, did this of their own wicked volition, out of their own carnality, out of their own depraved hearts. I like what Davies and Allison in their commentary on Matthew say, in Matthew 2, verses 15 through 18, Scripture is fulfilled not by the direct action of God or Jesus, but by human beings whose motivation cannot have been the carrying out of prophecy, although in the event, prophecy was carried out. In the midst of horror, in the midst of human depravity, in the midst of tragedy, the ultimate lesson here just as God ultimately broke the power of tyrants who opposed his work and will in the Old Testament, just as God broke the power of those who persecuted his people and destroyed innocent lives, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, so too did God frustrate and ultimately break the power of the tyrant Herod, Herod in the end. God's power, God's plan, and God's character always and ultimately triumph. They always, God always ultimately triumphs over evil. God always and ultimately triumphs over darkness. As God's beloved people, brothers and sisters, we can hold fast to, we can cling to this truth. In the end, 
God rules, God reigns, God wins. Even when we don't see it in the immediate, sometimes as we look at the world around us and the depravity we see, God is still at work and God is at rule. God always triumphs over evil, ultimately and always. God is our deliverer and God triumphs over evil. That should encourage us. That should build us up and strengthen us no matter what we have faced, what we are facing, or what we may face in the future because we have a loving, true, and faithful God who is our Redeemer and holds us in his care as his people. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you are almighty that you reign and rule over all. And even at times in a world filled with sin and darkness because of the fall and the rebellion against you, that seems to be unraveling, that seems sometimes to just be coming apart in every way and every place. We know that you are the sustainer of your creation. But beyond that, you are the redeemer of those who love and trust you through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son to accomplish for us what could never be accomplished by us or anyone else on our behalf. And that we can trust you. We can trust you. Because you are our faithful, true God and deliverer. And you triumph and you rule. So we praise you and we thank you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.